In recent years, questions of gender equality and inequality have been raised in the creative arts, including within theatre, visual arts, music, dance, and recently in film, with the important Me Too conversations. Welcome to this special season of Delving Into Dance. This three-part season explores international perspectives about gender equality in dance. This season complements a significant Delving Into Dance report that examines gender inequality within Australian dance. This report, Turning Point, presents some confronting data and the roles the whole industry can play in rectifying this situation. You can find the report on delvingintodance.com and join the conversation, leave a comment and share it with your friends. The first of this season is with Judith Mackerel from The Guardian UK. Judith has reviewed and written about dance since the 1980s and is a truly amazing thinker and writer. Her contribution to public discussions of gender equality in dance are also notable. I spoke to Judith on a freezing cold London afternoon as the snow steadily fell outside. And I started by asking, what was the first dance that really moved her? Actually, I, I can remember very specifically. It was, um, I was still at school and it was a piece by Robert Cohan performed by London Contemporary Dance Theatre at the Place Theatre when it was still quite a little company. And it, modern dance in this country was still a really new and radical thing. And, and I can remember, it was, I mean, it was a classic Graham, Martha Graham move. It was one, it was, I think it was called Cell, the piece. It was one of his sort of rather internal, kind of dark, psychological pieces. And there was a moment where this woman was sort of curved in a contraction and her one arm was very slowly swinging and she just sort of looked... She, there's something about the way her face caught the light as she looked. And I was just transported. I, I'd done ballet as a kid and then at a sort of stroppy teenage age had sort of decided, you know, it's all fairies and flowers and I'm too intellectual for this and I wanted to go off and read Jean-Paul Sartre and, you know, <laughs> go to Paris... <laughs> Be like Simone de Beauvoir. Like, you know, I was, I was that kind of pretentious kid, and I thought I'd done with dance altogether. And then I saw this piece, and I realised that it had, you know, it was as potent as words could be, and that it could actually express lots of things that I think for a teenage girl were, were you know, boiling away inside. So, so that was that was the moment, and I didn't then. Well, it was years that I before I thought about writing about dance, but I did then go back to studying dance. I, I did a lot of contemporary dance at university and beyond, and really loved it. Really found uh, I never wanted to be a dancer professionally, but I did enough to sort of feel it had got under my skin. Mm. So, how did writing about dance come about? Uh, that was. Um, uh, I, I had planned a sort of academic career, really, and I was doing a secondary degree. I was doing a DPhil at Oxford and um, sort of all set, really, except that there, it was a very bad time for getting jobs in higher education. There was actually a job freeze on under Margaret Thatcher. And um, I just thought, I'd, I'm not committed enough to this idea of a life that I would go anywhere to pursue it you know I basically wanted only to be either in Oxford or London <laughs> where my <laughs> friends were which was very shallow of me and um and so I sort of drifted away from that and I was doing quite a lot of dancing and a bit of writing and actually it was a friend of mine said oh well, you, know, you should write about dance you know you write you're writing all the time you're dancing all the time put it together and at that point there was there were very few dance critics around other than the kind of big national 
critics, you know, who work for the big broadsheet papers. And I kind of didn't really know how one went about it. So I kind of just sketched out some fake reviews. And then I went to a newsagent and I sat on the floor and went through all these magazines looking to see which might do a bit of arts coverage and which didn't seem to have a dance person. And I sort of sent off lots of my fake reviews and eventually got a few commissions and it just sort of grew from there, really. Yeah, amazing. But my... my I, I mean, I was really, really fortunate, really fortunate in that... Um, about two or three years after I'd started this, uh, the independent newspaper launched in 1986 and they were looking for new writers who hadn't necessarily had a lot of newspaper experience. And I got the gig there and that was absolutely Cinderella, go to the ball now, because you know, I, I kind of thought, unless there's a sort of plane crash with all national <laughs> critics on board, I'm never, ever going to get a job. So that was, that was wonderful. And it was great to be starting up with a brand new newspaper because there was a lot of sort of fizz and excitement around yeah. that. We had lots of space, 600-word reviews, which was fantastic. Um, so I, I had a, a great platform, and it was also the 80s. There was dance was on was getting into a bit of a role, but there was a lot of interest in the arts. I mean, it, it, I don't know how it was in Australia, but here it got quite glamorous there was lots of arts coverage on television so you felt you were part of something bigger yeah and writing about dance is so particular as well because it doesn't often have language attached to it so you're talking about bodies and what bodies are communicating yeah and i yeah i just love reading reviewers that kind of can capture that essence of movement and of dance it's it's i think it it makes dance writing one of the most difficult but also one of the most fun of the kind of critical disciplines, if you like, because, because you are, you're not, you're having to describe as well as analyse and judge. You're having, you know, lots of the people who you're hopefully going to read you won't have seen the show because mm. dance shows have very short runs. They very often have no kind of, reproduction no no kind of record there's no there's no way I mean you might see a glimpse of it on YouTube or something but it's so you're there to to act as a as some kind of record of Mm. that show and the challenge of finding the words finding the images that can capture at least a something of what you've seen you know, I think as a writer, that keeps you fresh. Mm. And it becomes such an important over time archive, a transient practice. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um. Yes, and I and I and that is that also I think makes um, makes writing about dance. As I said, that's what makes it it so fresh and interesting. Always as a critic, because. In a sense, it frees you. It, it doesn't free you from not judging. It doesn't free, sorry, it doesn't free you from judging. I mean, obviously, your principal duty is to your readership who want to know whether they should go and see this show or not. But there is also that sort of background obligation that, yeah, you know, your review might be one of the few records that survives mm. of this show. Less now, obviously, because people take their shows it's much easier to produce a sort of video or a kind of online recording of something but nonetheless I feel yeah you do feel you're part of a project you're part mm. of a kind of community and a video can't put something into the social and political context mm. Mm. of of where it is performed or when like a review can mm. that's true that's true your your voice in a sense provides something of 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 the of the background to that piece. Arts journalism has changed dramatically to the point now that space has become even smaller. Reviews are expected to be shorter. 
um, there aren't those same, I guess, platforms in many respects. Uh, I've been quite lucky. I mean, the, <laughs> the Guardian has been wildly uh, inconsistent in the last few years in terms of the word count they decide to allot us. So last year, our lead review suddenly jumped to 800 words. They're now back down to 560. The short reviews, though, are only sort of 250, 275. So that is kind of postcard length. Um, so that's quite a challenge. <laughs> Uh, flipping between those all those different word lengths because obviously what you write is so dependent on that you know whether whether you can really go into any kind of depth whether you can you know writing about dance the other problem is that obviously it's not just the choreography it's the music it's the design it's the lighting it's the performances as you say it could well be some of the political and social issues involved so you know if you're only writing a teeny tiny review you're just having to zone in on maybe just one or two of those so it's it's very hard to get the richness of a performance um I mean, I, I personally welcome the whole advent of online blogging and writing. I mean, I think some of it uh, can be quite vicious. You know, it can descend to a kind of slanging match when you get into kind of commentary and argument. Uh, but there are some very fine writers out there, and I like the idea that there's much more of a play of voices, mm. uh, even though often some of the critics' voices, the, the, the professional critics' voices, have been um, stunted, mm. you know, just by shorter reviews. But in general, yes, the, the, the trend seems to be, to be towards limiting arts review coverage. I mean, it's expensive. Mm. You know, it's, it is sadly one of the less, red areas of a newspaper it costs a lot because very often you're having to send people out to see a show outside London although that happens less and less I mean our coverage is hideously metropolitan now because who can afford the train and Mm. the hotel you know so it's 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 tricky times but I don't feel actually pessimistic I think I think we're in a transitional phase and I think um you know, certainly I look at young writers now and I think although it's a nightmare to make a living at this job in the way that I've been really fortunate to do, uh, they don't have to sit on the floor of a newsagent anymore. They can just... <laughs> yeah. You know, you can form your own blog you can, or you can write for one of the many excellent dance websites out there. I, in some respects, this is how the podcast started. I mean, my, yeah. my interest is in, in um, criticism, but it's in conversation. And I didn't I had no idea that people would listen. You know, mm. it was just I can get a website, I can get a recorder, and I can put it online. Yeah, yeah. and then ten thousand people have found it and follow, and it's just kind of it's very democratizing in that sense Absolutely. that anybody could have a go and um, in- engage and pick up the tools, and everyone's got a computer and yeah, and everyone's got a voice. and And I think the lovely thing about a podcast is you're sort of there. And people can come to you if yeah. they want and they can recommend you. And there's, there's, it's, you know, I think some of what on, what's online is very shouty and self-promoting and, I've, and that's a bit dispiriting. But I think, you know, it, that's, that's, what, that's what makes me optimistic is that people are finding different ways of different discourses, different forms of conversation, different forms of writing. And, and that's all brilliant. Mm. Yeah, it's just in, it's engaging with the practice yeah. in different ways and yeah. still providing those avenues for people to go and see your show yeah. or the context around a person's work. Mm. It's just a different format. Mm. Um, in a lot of your work, you've written about gender and gender equity. Um, and there was a piece that you wrote a few years ago now and the byline was, why are the male choreographers getting so much attention? Yeah. What's that about? Well, it was very interesting. When I started at The Independent in 1986, 
it seemed just a simple matter of fact that in modern dance particularly, women dominated the art form. It wasn't just that you had the absolute greats like you know, Martha Graham, um, Pina Bausch, Trisha Brown, the rest of the Judsons, Lucinda Childs, but that the next generation coming along were also dominated by women. Um, and I just, I, 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 never, I never really questioned that until uh, actually it was a colleague of mine at The Guardian, an arts journalist, who went to a press conference that was held at Sadler's Wells, where they were announcing their new sort of associate choreographers. <laughs> she said, to me, she said, they're all men and they're all bald. I mean, they all had shaved heads or they were bald. <laughs> she said, what's going on? And I looked at them and it was Wayne McGregor, it was Akram Khan. It, but there was, there was a whole bunch of them and she was absolutely right. And I, I, I suddenly took a look and I thought, this this has changed dramatically and I've not had my eye on the ball. That the, 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 the people, the choreographers who were getting the big commissions, who were doing the big interna- international productions, who were getting the big tours, who were getting all the media spotlight, had become men. Matthew Bourne, as I said, Wayne McGregor, Hoffa Schechter, uh, Akram, and of course there were women around but they seemed to have slipped several rungs down and and I was then aware that there were actually two or three young women choreographers who were becoming quite vocal uh, in their own right and and it just sort of gained a bit of momentum I mean it wasn't just me there were a couple of other critics and these other voices just beginning to kind of question and probe and and the, that conversation was very interesting because um, I was quite wary as an s- older woman uh, of in any way intimating that somehow these younger women lacked the confidence or the assertiveness. You know, they weren't without talent, but why were they not out there mm. working on the big scale? I think it was it was it was the disparity, not so much the disparity in numbers of choreographers, or male female, the balance between male female, but the balance of scale mm. and visibility and profile. So the difference between a main, like a main stage kind of exactly big theatre space yeah. as opposed to a smaller. Yeah. And and I didn't want to suggest that women weren't just going out and seizing the opportunities, although very interestingly, uh, a woman. Uh, we, there was a conference at which some of this stuff got aired and one woman who'd been at the Arts Council for several years said she had noticed a difference in the way that women presented their applications, that men simply went in, would even approach her and say, how do I do this? Would you be interested? <coughs> and would be much more... They would, they would be... They would make a move, whereas women were much, she said, much more hesitant. So I thought, well, that, that's interesting. You know, is there something in the culture even that women are, in some senses, just become more unsure of themselves? Mm. Uh, so that's a whole other debate about feminism. There were other women who talked I think quite rightly about the fact that um, that very often because because the, the trajectory of a dancer and a choreographer's career that often they start out as dancers in their 20s and then it's in their 30s that a lot of the, or late 20s 30s that a lot of them start turning to choreography and that for women that's obviously a problem because early to mid 30s is sort of premium time if you want to start a family and that taking time out for motherhood makes it then very difficult to carry on rising through the ranks as a choreographer because you know touring the pressure of fundraising I mean the job I think has become a lot more pressured a lot Mm. harder probably than it was when dance was on a much smaller scale Mm. um 
So that that was another perspective. Um, I think there's a genuine truth in the fact that when an art form starts out and there's not a lot of money in it and it's experimental, that's when women often flourish. I mean, if you just look at novel writing, you know, the, a lot of the great early novelists were women and there was no money or very little money to be had. And likewise, you know, if you look at when modern dance has gone through its most experimental phases, Graham, Isadora Duncan, Graham, the Judson generation, and then I think the kind of flourishing of, eight, of dance here in the 80s, it's, it, somehow it seems to be a context in which women creatively thrive. And then somehow when the money gets attached and there's more pressure and there's more, the budgets get bigger and the stakes get higher, that's when the men move in. Hmm. Uh, you know, all this is, is it hugely the, contentious and difficult. And Is it that the boards and the um, uh, gatekeepers are inherently more conservative or risk-adverse and men are then seen as a safer bet? Or is it that... I, you see, I wouldn't say so because in modern dance, people are always looking for the risk and mm. the danger. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, if you think of someone like Lloyd Newson, for instance, who rapidly came, became very, very successful, you know, on works like Dead Dreams of Monochrome Men, which was the most raw, harrowing, and you know, un, you know, the very essence of unconservative mm. work. So, but I think what is the I think what is the case is that when big budgets are involved and they are in these big international touring productions, that then people want to know that they've got someone who can deliver. And I think that's when the whole problem becomes self-perpetuating. That if you've got a a male choreographer who's got a really good track record and will bring a whole lot of publicity with him, that's maybe a safer option than a less well-known woman who's maybe been working, making work for a small scale and wants to make the transition to the bigger stage but needs someone to invest some time and some confidence in her. Mm. So I think it's not that people's <coughs> conservative... In terms of the work, I think it's conservative in terms of we need to make sure that the box office will deliver on this. Mm. And then the flip side is if you've only got men having those opportunities or those touring or um, that next generation don't have those high-profile mentors or those mentors within those companies to take them under their wing and... Uh, I guess t- teach them the levers or teach them yeah. how to operate in that yeah. space. Yeah. And, and I think it's also, I mean, one of the other um, sort of arguments that came up was to do with the fact that because still many more women enter dance as a profession, um, when men are in a class, <laughs> a little bit of extra fuss tends to be made. Uh, the fact that perhaps they've had to overcome more obstacles to either get their parents or their friends to accept that this dance is what they want to do means that there's a kind of self-selecting process going on that the more committed, the more ballsy, the more passionate, the more driven personalities get through to the top. Um, so I think there's an element of that as well. Um, I mean, but then, but then there are some people who, who simply say, "Oh, it's just an entrenched sexism within the establishment." I don't quite buy that. I think it's, there's there's been laziness, mm. as we said earlier, in terms of people just wanting to go for the the familiar names, the familiar product. Mm. And there's maybe 
a degree of kind of sexism in terms of perceiving men as somehow more ballsy, more feisty, more uh, as, as stronger faces, stronger voices. But but actually, I've rarely seen it in operation in any company or in any venue. I think if there is sexism, it's something much more intangible, much more, much more to do with the way our society is operating at the moment. Mm. Um, There's something too, you know, which is quite interesting is those men and boys growing up would have potentially been seen as the sissy boys. Yeah. Or, you know, and yet they can still climb this, uh, this ladder yeah. and capitalise on a, uh, uh, male traits or masculine yeah. traits. Yeah. I mean, there's a very interesting corollary to this, which is that in ballet, and I don't know if it's the case in contemporary dance, but in ballet, companies are now having a, a finding that the young men auditioning coming through are much more gifted it's much easier to find talent among young men than young women mm. and whether that's because young women are you know what was traditionally an arena uh, an arena for them now they found other things they'd rather do or whether that actually to succeed in ballet now in particular you have to be so good so focused so driven that actually if we're accepting this model of young men and women, that, that the guys are showing that kind of discipline and determination uh, and, that, and that sort of culturally young women aren't so, so armoured by it. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. There's something about that model too which has been brought up quite a lot in interviews I've done about the hierarchical system where there are more girls, there are insecurities around body or the perfect body. And as a result, um, by the time they start making Mm. those leaves, they're they're already quite battered Mm. um, Mm. and bruised from that process. Mm -hmm. That to have an individual voice or an outspoken voice or um, to be more of a maverick is something that is... um, I guess the system hasn't encouraged. Yeah, I mean, it's particularly the case in ballet, obviously, because it's a much more idealised and it's a much more competitive art form. I mean, uh, I was talking to one ballet director about um, the the issues of having a kind of more uh, diversity in terms of colour and background in ballet. And the problem is, is that I think almost every ballet director that I've encountered wants to do they want to see more black and well not i mean asian dancers um, no longer actually a minority i mean they're becoming a majority in the yeah. art but they don't you know they want to see more black dancers more uh, dancers from more working class backgrounds say but the trouble is because the technique is becoming so much more rarefied so much more high powered mm. you know we see dancing at a level that I didn't see even when I started as a critic. And the trouble is that is sort of limiting the pool of because talent. Because also that long-term investment. It's you know, a long-term investment. People start at five, and if yeah. your parents don't have the money to send you to class two times a week and then it increases to three times into those different courses and summer schools, you don't develop that uh, technique. Exactly, and also... If you're not coming from a cultural or a social background where that kind of discipline is instilled or encouraged or, you know, or when you are having to deal with the kind of mockery of your peers or... But, I mean, it, there's, there's so many, so many factors that go into, go into this. And I don't really know... I don't know how we address it. Mm. Um... Because as I said, some of it seems to be so much endemic in society, but but maybe it's also to do with maybe we need to sit back and say, well, what do we 
you know, this is a question for ballet. What do we want from ballet? Do we want these ever more superhuman dancers? Do we want more maverick, odd voices, bodies, mm. personalities? We'll see. That's a big question. Yeah. In regards to some of these issues, are there particular companies or programs or things that you're seeing shifting and changing that you see as welcome or...? Yeah, I mean, I... There's been a huge... Uh, I wouldn't say movement. There's been, there's been a huge increase in uh, companies working with disabled dancers, differently abled dancers. Um, and I think that's been really interesting, just the revelation that you can look. Uh, I don't know if you've had him performing in... Uh, Australia, David Toole, who used to be with the mm. company Kanduko, you know, who's uh, essentially dances with, you know, he's, he's, he has no legs. Also. <laughs> he's, uh, but who, by the force of his extraordinary physicality and his charisma and his expressive intensity, made you realize this isn't a dancer you look at as a special case or that you pity or that you think of as some kind of uh, exotic addition I mean that was a genuine he was a genuine performer who stood alongside any normally able-bodied dancer you know with pride and and panache so I that's been interesting to me how how um how far one's perceptions of beauty and talent mm. could be pushed in dance. Uh, it's been interesting to see a lot of older dancers being either brought back into dance or embraced. Um, you know, and even most recently in ballet where uh, Alessandra Ferry at age of 50 plus having given up her career entirely, came back and starred in Wayne McGregor's Wolf Works. So I think I think there's there's it's it's an interesting phenomenon that on the one hand there's there's an attempt to break down these sort of physical stereotypes of what a great dancer can or should be. But at the same time, <laughs> at the core of the art form it seems to be getting more and more rigorous and ruthless. Um, so so interesting. There's been a lot of conversations around the Me Too um, hashtag mm. and that in other creative spaces. Do you reckon there's going to be more revelations and conversations coming out of dance? Yeah, I mean, when you mentioned the issue of hierarchy, uh, I do think that is something that 21st ballet companies, 21st century ballet companies are going to have to deal with because... Um, there is something about the way that dancers remain infantilized, um, and I don't use that term in a judgmental way, but in the practical way they are, by virtue of having to have been so disciplined, so responsive to instruction all those years, that 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 they. It's 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 difficult for a lot of them to to vocalise what they want. It's difficult for them to find um, a sense of power within themselves. Um, I mean, that's an odd thing to say on one hand because I'm I'm awed by how grown up dancers are on one <coughs> level. You know that they they become hugely professional at the age of 18 when most kids are still kind of slopping around. <laughs> Trying to work out what they're doing know, with life. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, as we all know, adolescence seems to now be protracted until most kids are in their mid-twenties. So, so on the one hand, dancers, I think, are fantastically uh, adult and, you know, admirably focused and self-responsible, but... Because the working environment is all about them being told what to do, essentially. Um, and within 
a company structure that is in itself has layers and layers and layers of hierarchy. Uh, I, I think that does give an unreasonable amount of power to those at the top and an unreasonable degree of passivity, mm. particularly to the younger dancers. And, you know, obviously running a huge, a large ballet company is incredibly difficult. You know, you have to be, in a sense, like a super parent. You have to yell at people. I'm, I'm sure you do. I, I mean, I couldn't do it to save my life. And there are going to be... You know, you're dealing with people's egos. You're going. You, you've got a director has a dancer's career pretty much in their hands. So, you know, you're always going to have dancers who feel slighted and overlooked and wounded and and, and betrayed, and other dancers who may seem to be being um, overly favoured or privileged. So, it, it, you know, I'm not surprised all these revelations are coming out about discontent and abuse you know shades a huge a huge spectrum of that behavior uh, in companies now and but i think while there are individuals who may well have behaved extremely badly i also think there's something about the uh, whole culture of ballet that needs to be shifted a bit in order to find some more kind of equal place where, of course, you have to have an artistic director steering the company. Of course, dancers have to fit in to the creation of a work, to a rehearsal schedule. They have to turn up for class on time, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But, but some more kind of equable middle ground where those voices can meet and where you know maybe even having the kind of very strict hierarchy we have in many ballet companies of you know corps de ballet all the way up through artists senior artists principal you know maybe if that was loosened up a bit more so there was there was less of a sense of of ranking mm. more I mean I remember um who was it? I think Antoinette Sibley saying that when she first joined the Royal Ballet, you know, you 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 you, you didn't speak to a principal unless you were spoken to. You know, it was it was a bit like being at a royal <laughs> imagine, court. Yeah. yeah. So obviously things have changed a great deal since then, but it. I, th- I think that culture persists a little bit. Mm. You know, almost there's almost like a sentimental attachment to it as much as a sort of pragmatic, oh, well, it's always worked that way, so let's keep it going. What advice would you have to a young female coming up through the ranks, either in a ballet or within the industry mm. more broadly? Well, it's the advice I'd probably give to any young woman, which is to... Focus on, it sounds like a hallmark card, but focus on what your gift is, what your talent is, what you are. Know that if someone's offered you a job, it's because they've seen something. Hopefully it's because they've seen something individual in you. And to try and sort of cherish that to make it, of course, absorb everything you can from what's around you. Of course, learn. Of course, find your role models. But don't, don't try and be someone else. You know that, as a critic and a fan, you know there's nothing more exciting than seeing a dancer who is completely individual. You know they don't need to be perfect, but to have that sort of flame inside to have that um, <coughs> that way of moving that expresses something that you know is so particular to them that's the thrill mm. and that's the way the way you connect with an audience um, I mean there's a really extreme example I remember reading Gelsey Kirkland's memoir where she talks about 
the fact that she could never believe in herself. She was always trying to imitate somebody else, trying to be skinnier than that ballerina, to have the, the kind of bravura Bolshoi style of another ballerina. I mean, to trying to be all things to all people. And then you become nothing. And, and yes, if, even if there's someone in your class who looks like the perfect sort of prototype of the blonde, skinny, perfect ballerina, Barbie ballerina, don't look at them. Mm. It's easy advice to give and, you know, much, much harder to follow. But I, I mean, I, I, I mean, going back to the culture of, to the sort of wider culture that these young women are coming out of, um, you know, again, I'm very conscious of sounding like a patronising old bat, but, uh, you know, as everyone knows, they are, people are so exposed via social media, via adverts, via um, images of women that are so airbrushed that to actually just sort of settle down and be yourself, to be at ease with yourself, is so harder, so much harder than it was for people of my generation, where you, know, you barely, hardly ever saw a photo of yourself, really. I mean, apart from family snap. I mean, people didn't take photos all the time. You didn't, you weren't consciously aware of how you looked from the outside. You just got on with stuff. And and I think that degree of self-consciousness and that kind of degree of self-criticism that young men and women are subjected to now. Mm. It's, it's paralysing. I took several selfies in the snow on the way here. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was it. the snow. I mean, exactly. And, I mean, and again, I think there's, there's aspects of social media I love. You know, I, I think it's, there is something wonderfully, you know, social when it's working about, but, but also this, this terrible pressure to somehow be conforming to this cloud version of what's the perfect life, the perfect body, the perfect boyfriend, mm. girlfriend, whatever. How can men in the industry be better advocates or be more cognizant of these issues? I think simply by being aware helps. And uh, I think when, you know, one of the things that women choreographers, when they said when they saw first blew up here was it would be great if the if the men who are given the platforms who are given the microphones could speak up for women you know when appropriate um that to recognize when a woman's confident confidence is failing a bit um I think there's now, amongst male artistic directors and programmers, there's a, a, certainly a real self-consciousness here about um, making sure women are being seen and heard. Um, you know, comically, I mean, poor Crystal Pite in the ballet world feels like she's got <laughs> a whole weight of, you know, the female ballet choreographer on her shoulders. I mean, her and a handful of other choreographers, because the, the male directors, they, this is what's so <laughs> absurd, is that we're now in a situation where everybody's falling over themselves to program women choreographers. But of course, the system doesn't change that fast. And and it, it not only does it not doesn't not only does it not change sufficiently fast for the women to be coming forward, but also because we are still stuck in this world where, as I said, the the, the high profile production you've still got that financial pressure riding. So I think people don't that that it, it, you need time and to kind of look around and explore who's out there mm. and that's one thing a lot of these guys don't have you know is actually to be 
trawling the little festivals and trawling YouTube and mm. just saying, well, okay, who's that name? Who's that? Is she, is, what could she do for me? You know, how could I do something for her? So, so I think it's. It, I think the change will be slow, but I think it will happen. Mm. It's that accountability too, isn't it? Yes, and that that's great. That that people now feel they are being watched and they are being you know, the male female balance is being scrutinised much harder. Because mm. I see that there's a role for you know female dancers and choreographers. I feel like there's a role for the men in the industry, mm. but then I also feel like there's a role for the audiences. Yes, and the audiences are the ones that are the bums on seats. Yeah. So if they are demanding or if they are expressing an interest, then, yeah. you know, there are all these different levers pushing in all different yeah. directions. Yeah. The, uh, the work can only get more diverse and more interesting. Mm. Uh, that's, my, that's my thing. Finally, I'm moving away from the gender stuff. What are some things that are exciting you in dance at the moment? I'm interested, it's very funny, when I first started as a critic professionally, my tastes were formed very much by choreographers like Most Cunningham, Balanchine, Richard Alston, Siobhan Davis. They were choreographers who, whose language was very much about pure dance, and I, Mark Morris, you know, thrilled by just seeing what rhythms and shapes and patterns and worlds could be conjured up just by bodies moving. Um, and I had very little interest in story ballets. I thought they were so old-fashioned, so clunky. And there was very little kind of narrative dance theatre around then. Um, and it's interesting. So I've been very interested how that's all evolved and how sort of the art of storytelling is, has come back to ballet. And, but the variety of ways in which those stories are being told, but also the variety of actual stories that are being told. Um, and although that means that quite a lot of the work I see is now veering towards theatre as much as it is pure dance. It's I love to see a choreographic sensibility brought to the stage, you know, even if people are talking and handling props, um, when they're sensitive to bodies and when they're sensitive to how just the glance of an eye or the change of breath or stance change in tension in a body, you know, all those things, you know, that's, that's, that's really exciting to me, how the art form is enriching itself and how, you know, in troubled times, we do need those stories. We need stories to be told about ourselves and about the world we live in, and, and dance can do that as much as other art forms. So that's been interesting. Um, it's terrible when people ask, what are you excited about? My mind goes blank as if I wasn't excited at all. <laughs> and yet, fascinating, over the last two weeks, I've given three five-star shows in a row. So one of them was Pina Bausch's Victor. And that was very interesting because... I was I was I was unsure what I would, I'd seen this I've seen that production maybe three or four times and I thought with maybe the influx of new dancers into the company somehow it would start to feel oh, I've seen that done that you know it's that they're maybe going through the paces a bit and actually I was I enjoyed it more than any other time I'd seen it practically because they were bringing a different life and an energy and a different physicality to it as well. So there were the great old-timers like Dominique Merci and others and Julie Shanahan, who, fantastic. But So that was great to me. And the other three, so I gave three stars, five stars to that, sorry. I gave five stars to a show by a sort of choreographer who I love, Ben Duke, who works here, who 
his previous work was a one-man solo adaptation of Milton's Paradise Lost, which was hilarious and epic and crazy. <laughs> and he's just done a new show called Juliet and Romeo, which is, works on the premise that Romeo and Juliet don't die in the tomb, but have actually survived to become rather squabbling middle-aged lovers. <laughs> and that was so funny and so beautifully put together. It was a mix of text and dance and very finely chosen music. And and the first half is hilarious, and I love to laugh in dance. Give me a good performance by the... Valley Trocadero, and I'm as happy as Larry. But the second half of this Julieta Romeo got more and more dark, more and more harrowing. And that was brilliant. And then the other was a Giselle by a young dancer called Francesca Haywood, who zipped up the ranks at the Royal. And um, that was really exciting to me because she's one of those dancers who... She has a beautiful technique, but you're not looking at the technique. It's as if she's every step she's making up on the spur of the moment because that's what the character she's dancing has to be doing. You know, it's, mm. it just feels like just a necessary, out spontaneous expression of thought and emotion, and that is always so exciting to me as a fan and a critic is just to see a dancer so inhabit a role that you. You couldn't imagine her being at any other place or time than there, and you either. You know, it's just, yeah, that's the thing of dance. It's the perfect moment when it happens. Thanks for listening. I encourage you to explore the episode notes at delvingintodance.com, where you'll also find the self-funded report, Turning Points, Gender Equality in Australian Dance. We all have a role to play. Join the conversation and spread the word. You can find Delving Into Dance on Twitter, on iTunes, and on Facebook. Lastly, Delving Into Dance relies on the support of you, the listener. Contribute now on the website. These contributions will help fund future research and episodes. Delving Into Dance also acknowledges the support of the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. Until next time, take care.